Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 26th, 2021. Uh, it is uh, late morning on the West Coast. Uh, early afternoon on the East Coast and evening in Europe. I hope you're all well. Um, the headlines today are that fact and fiction continue to be entangled, to be confused with one another. The headline that's caught my attention this morning is um, uh, James, and this is from the New York Times, James Bond meets Jeff Bezos. Amazon makes... Um, uh, an eight and a half billion dollar deal for the Hollywood studio MGM. There's another headline from Gizmodo: Jeff Bezos, a real life Bond villain, may now own the James Bond uh, franchise or brand. Uh, this idea of fact and fiction getting very confused. A few days ago, we had Brad Stone, uh, the world's leading authority on Bezos and Amazon on the show with his new book, Amazon Unbound. Uh, and Brad Stone tweeted today uh, that um, Bezos has 12 ingredients for every epic story. Uh, and he was tweeting this in the context, of course, of the MGM story. And one of those ingredients um, is a compelling antagonist. Uh, Bezos is, of course, uh, the most compelling antagonist around today. The show today, though, isn't about Bezos or James Bond or Brad Stone or Amazon. It's about character, the thing that defines Bond and perhaps Bezos, one of the world's leading authorities on the idea of character, not in a moral sense, but in a media sense, in terms of the movies and books is my guest today, Robert McKee. Uh, his new book is, is just out, and he uh, is a real honor to have uh, Robert on the show. Um, Robert, character, this mixing of fact and fiction. Um, I don't want to spend today just talking about Jeff Bezos and James Bond, um, but were you intrigued with the fact that Jeff Bezos, uh, a seemingly real-life villain, is buying the, the, the dominant franchise of uh, good and evil in today's early 21st century? No, not really, because uh, I'm old enough to remember how many times Hollywood studios have been bought and sold by everybody from Sony to whoever. And uh, it just goes on and on and on. And uh, uh, new ownership doesn't really matter much. Uh, somebody still has to create the characters and stories that those uh, studios, whoever owns them, um, are going to uh, write and uh, produce and distribute. And so that storytelling is a universal enterprise, it, as old as humankind, it's never going to stop. And um, um, the, the executives may come and go, but uh, but story is forever. So no, I'm not. I'm not moved. <laughs> well, I'm going to try and move you today, Robert. Maybe in different ways. Your book opens with a, a fascinating observation, which I, I want you to explain. You say 
characters are not human beings. A character is no more human than the Venus de Milo, Whistler's mother, and sweet Georgia Brown are women. A character is a work of art, an emotive, meaningful, memorable metaphor for humanity, born in the mind womb of an author, held safe in the arms of story, destined to live forever. That's a wonderful opening to the book. Perhaps you might give it a bit of flesh. Well, I can reduce it down to uh, two words. Um, Don't copy. Don't think that you can just uh, meet someone or yourself, for that matter, and just copy a person that you actually know into a character. Uh, People you meet or know might inspire you, by all means, and might give you an idea um, for something. Uh, But you have to go beyond people. And that's what I mean when I say they're works of art. Their characters are superior to people. They're more knowable. <clears throat> you can know them in depth in ways you can never know another human being in depth, uh, perhaps even yourself. Um, and um, they may change. They may arc their natures within the story. But once they're in a story, they're forever, whereas people come and go. <laughs> so... Um, and, and so yet, Robert, you say, uh, you say that people come and go, but one of the things, one of the words that, you, that I picked out of your book is the, the value of, of, of humanism. Um, and, and you mentioned earlier that um, people haven't changed for, and I'm quoting you, for eons. And you, I'm quoting you again, the guys and girls who stenciled their handprints on the walls of caves 40,000 years ago uh, we're doing then what we do today, making selfies. So are you suggesting that we need to get beyond the, and to quote you again, the guys and girls who put together the, the cave paintings, uh, which represent the earliest example of, of human art? No, I, what I'm advocating is a, a, a perception of depth and complexity of understanding human beings outwardly in terms of their observable behaviors, um, their personal relationships, friends, family, lovers, their their private inner life, their conscious life, and uh, the, the various selves that argue inside of a human being that <clears throat> underpinned by a subconscious mind that has in many ways a mind of its own. And so understanding human beings on all those levels and the and, and dimensionality, because di- dimension means uh, contradiction. And uh, human beings are consistently contradictory. <clears throat> and so what you see on the surface of someone uh, suggests one thing, but what you discover when uh, people are in action and making choices and <clears throat> uh, doing things in life is often uh, someone else. And that people are not who they seem to be. I mean, everybody knows that. Well, I don't know everybody, Robert. If everyone knew it, we wouldn't need you. Uh, Most people, I think, mix. uh, You know this better than I do. Most people actually mix up what they read in books or what they see in screens from real life. But again, to come back to this, you you say, and this word versus, it, it comes up quite a lot in your book, character versus people. I love what you what you write here. It really seems to capture your argument. 
A human being is an evolving work in progress. A character is a finished work in performance. What does that mean? Well, people, people in their lives, in their real everyday, 24-hour-a-day lives, are evolving. They're growing older, for one thing, uh, and their attitudes may be shifting and changing. And, um, and so they are a work in progress. They are <clears throat> becoming whoever they will become eventually. Whereas uh, a character is fixed forever. And, <clears throat> and, uh, and they, they, they are performance. A writer creates a story that is a performance place when you read the novel, when you see the film or the TV series, or you go to the theater, that those characters performed and they will be re-performed every time you read it. Uh, they won't change. They may arc within the story, but once they're done, they're done. People are never done. But are they really done, uh, Robert? Uh, coming back to Bond, of course, uh, he was originally created by Ian Fleming, quite a controversial British writer. The movies themselves are quite controversial. They've shifted from a, a Fleming-like sort of 50s or post-war sensibility uh, to something much more politically correct. Um, surely characters may be finished, but our perception of them change over time, doesn't they? You're talking, about, you're talking about a character who has had sequels and he's been performed by, I don't know, half a dozen different actors. Uh, and there's been, what, 25 uh, Bond films. And so that that character actually, like a living person, um, is evolving. And uh, Daniel Craig's uh, version of him is uh, terrific. Um, and um, and they would... The, the glamour has been de-glamorized. Uh, uh, so he's evolving. I don't know if it's politically correct, but it's certainly um, changing with the times. There was a time, if you remember when he would, the old Bond would um, care about whether or not a martini was uh, shaken or stirred. And uh, there's a scene in Casino Royale where Daniel Craig's Bond goes up and asks for a martini and the bartender asks him, would you like that? shaken or stirred and he looks at yeah. the guys he says well i look like the kind of guy that gives a shit uh <laughs> and, and so that that's that's it but that character is evolving yeah uh, well that character is a is a kind of uh postmodern one who's able to make fun yeah. of his former self uh exactly. your characters though um robert are really quite c complicated um you have this wonderful chapter, character and focus. And again, I, I want to quote you here because you, you, you put it so well. You say, people wear masks. Characters invite intrigue. We often meet people either too difficult to understand or too irrelevant to bother with. But an author can turn an annoying persona into a personality puzzle. The finest fictional characters demand rigorous concentration and psychological acumen from the writer. Just as we grapple with the difficult people in our lives, we gravitate towards characters who make our brains work. I, I think that's a wonderfully, wonderfully um, smart way of, of putting it. Why is that? Why are we so, why do we gravitate towards those types, particularly authors, particularly the creative class? The people that we meet in life, even, you know, our closest family members, our loved ones, our wives, our husbands, whatever, are puzzles 
yet to be solved. And they are changing, they're evolving, and so are you and your perceptions. And, and uh, uh, it's ongoing. But when you read a wonderful story with a great complex character, that is a puzzle that has been solved. And so you get insight. I mean, that's ultimately we go to the fiction writer to understand life in a way we cannot understand it in life, to learn. Uh, Aristotle said this 2,500 years ago, that the, the deep pleasure of going to the theater or reading Homer um, is learning without being taught. And so we go to the great storytellers to learn without being taught by <clears throat> just absorbing these wonderful characters and their, their actions uh, and having an insight now into life that you really cannot get any other way. Uh, and so fiction makes life livable. It gives us understandings. <clears throat> Otherwise, life without, without stories, life would be confusing beyond endurance. You mentioned Aristotle, Robert. Uh, your, sec your, your second chapter is entitled The Aristotle Debate. Plot versus character. Now, of course, many people will be uh, familiar with your earlier uh, bestsellers, story and dialogue. Where do you? F so, so, so you're not just a character guy. You're also a guy who's written brilliantly and very successfully about both story and dialogue. Where do you stand on the plot versus character debate when it comes to Aristotle? My, uh, my. Uh position is that they are inseparable and they are the same character is story story is character and um, <clears throat> that Aristotle ranked story above character was simply because in 2500 years ago um, <clears throat> characters were very powerful but they were clearly uh, types and um, tragic types but but <clears throat> Uh, types and um, and uh, and he he thought that the that actions are were more important than uh, character because his Aristotle's understanding of psychology, although profound for his day, was certainly less than that we have now. And so um, uh, uh, he he put character he put story above character. I say they are two sides of the same coin. A character is the choices of action they, they, they make in life and the actions they then choose to take. The events of a story are what characters choose under pressure to do. And so you cannot separate them. <clears throat> An event is a character's choice of action under pressure. A character is the kind of person who would make those choices and take those actions under pressure. And so they're the same thing. Story is character. Character is story. And in Aristotle, he ranked one above the other. Uh, but I think that's because his, his experience of story was limited <clears throat> to the great works of the classical tragedies and great Greek comedies and uh, Homer. And so, in fact, in, um, in my book on character, I do an analysis of um, uh, Odysseus as an eight-dimensional character. Uh, and so um, uh, it wasn't as if the characters were unsophisticated. 
Right. Well, I, I think uh, Robert, your 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 argument about you you've got out of the Aristotle dilemma in a very Ar- Aristotelian way. Um, you say that um, you you say that characters last; they last forever. Um, you quoting you again. Ideas have a lifespan, often short. That's why stories tend to rust, and the more irrebound their meanings, the shorter their existence. For even the greatest of stories to survive, their themes need constant up to now reinterpretation. What lasts is character. Homer's Odysseus, Shakespeare's Cleopatra, James Joyce's Leopold Bloom, Arthur Miller's Willie Loman, Mario Puzio's Michael Corleone, Margaret Atwood's Offred the the Handmaid. Um, You say all these have lasted forever. Um, You also say that... um, you say that uh, uh, Mar- uh, you, you said that Margaret Atwood has created a, a character forever. We had Margaret Atwood on the show quite recently. What is it about Atwood's achievement and these other artists? How did they create these characters that are eternal, that will never die? You see, she understands the dark side. And her characters are both light and dark, both good and evil, both right and wrong, both caring and selfish. I mean, they are complex, multidimensional characters. And the key is the dark side of human nature. Um, And she gets it. And consequently, she creates these amazing, wonderful stories and amazing characters because she's not sentimental. Uh, she's a realist and she understands the human beings are both good and evil and it's a perfect 50-50 balance. Human beings are not more good than evil, nor are they more evil than good. It's a perfect 50-50 balance and that's what makes them so eternally fascinating is that you never know from one moment to the next what you're going to get out of the character because they're both. And she's wonderful at that. She gets it. You say, though, you, 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 are you suggesting then that it's the moral sensibility you have, and we'll get onto this later, that um, that authors of characters need to sort of master moral sensibility to be morally literate. But are you suggesting that the eternal characters are the ones who have this balance of good and evil in them? Well, when I use the word moral, I don't mean it in terms of uh, morality. Uh, a moral vision means that you see everything around you you see people and everything in yourself in in a in a dynamic positive versus negative charge that's what a moral vision means it means you you um you see the positive and then and the negative in everything uh in society and nature i mean you know everything everything on this planet Every living thing on this planet dies by being eaten by something else. <clears throat> and understanding that the, all of nature, all of reality, all of society, all of human nature is constantly a dynamic shift between positive and negative um, is what we mean by having a moral vision, <clears throat> seeing everything in that kind of dynamic way without prejudice. Uh, and, uh, and so somebody like Mar- uh, uh, Margaret Atwood has a moral vision. She sees societies of, of, of 
constant array of positive versus negative, good and evil, right and wrong, something that's worth something, something that's worthless. That's a moral vision. And a writer, a successful writer. Yeah, writer. You, 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 have, um, you have 10, 10, uh, 10 things that you, you, you're trying to arm your reader with in terms of the creation of character. And one is a moral imagination, which you, you mm. just talked about. Do you think there's a little too much moral imagination these days that books and movies have become slightly too moralistic, too politicized? Are you worried no, about that? No, I wouldn't think so. Um, if anything, if anything, it's going in the other direction. Um, the TV series I watch now that are really compelling and wonderful, especially since film has almost disappeared except online, um, uh, you have um, uh, very complex characters who are um, um, uh, equally uh, positive and negative. And uh, often the, the, the world of a, of a TV series today is a, a, a universe of criminals. There's a wonderful series with uh, <clears throat> Forrest, uh, uh, um, what's his name? A, it's called... Um, uh, the Godfather of Harlem, <laughs> and um, uh, it's gangsters, um, but I've, uh, at war with each other. But I, I'm I'm watching a wonderful British series called um, Line of Duty, <clears throat> which is a, a cop series of wonderful procedurals uh, told from the point of view of police who um, uh, are, are searching for uh, criminals in the police department. And so the notion that the police are somehow just positive and criminals are negative, now you have criminal cops. Uh, and so if I've seen anything, if there's a trend going on anywhere, it's the realization that human beings are both good and evil uh, uh, everywhere, <laughs> everywhere. Uh, and uh, uh, what's that wonderful series called Ozark, where you have a nice middle class, upper middle class Chicago family that gets involved with drug dealers and become themselves criminals. So, um, no, I think um, that, that it's, um, it's more complex, more realistic, uh, less moralistic uh, than it's ever been. And um, I think modern writers today are exploring the dark side of human nature in greater complexity and depth than they ever have. Robert, you've spent a lot of time training these writers. You give workshops. You've had these best-selling books, story, dialogue, and now character. Um, you suggest at the end of the book uh, that, that, that being an artist, being someone who creates character, it's a hard business. It, it, it's, it's, it, it's unforgiving. Um, they need to be um, uh, what you call a, a, a solitary revolutionary and, and and therefore a humanist um most people aren't able to do that are they most people fancy fancy themselves as, as sculptors of builders of character of being creative but most people don't have it in them do they well for a lot of reasons uh, not the least of which is um uh, to write uh, an excellent e screenplay I mean, there, there are people who think you, you can do this in two weeks. 
Um, but I know from uh, experience and the, the writers I know, it's really two years. From the moment of inspiration to the final last draft that is optioned by a studio. Um, and uh, to write a novel could easily take twice that. And, and so... Um, More than twice. Most, especially yeah. first-time novelists, can spend 10 years. There you go. And so the, the, the ability to uh, persevere, uh, most people who go, want to be writers really don't have that willpower, and, and taste. I think taste was the number one quality in that list. Yeah, you, uh, you, you, you start with taste on um, uh, learning to discriminate between bad and good in other people's writing is not difficult, but to see it in your own calls for guts and judgment powered by an intrinsic disgust with banality and an eye for the vital versus the lifeless. An artist, therefore, needs a keen sense of distaste. It's almost Nietzschean. Most people think they have taste, though. It's very hard to tell people they don't. With books like this, Robert, you're, you're selling a dream, aren't you? People pick this book up because they fancy themselves as being able to create character for television or screen or books, but they can't. Well, I, I write for the, um, for the talented and, uh, and for the strong-willed uh, and um, uh, those people who are willing to destroy their work in order to ultimately achieve uh, something that's worth keeping, uh, and and I know I know easily when I when I would give uh, when I give my s seminars, there's two three hundred people in a room, and um, my guess is that if two of them actually end up writing something of quality, that's a very good day, and so the odds are at least. 100 to 1, uh, as the Bible says, you know, many, <laughs> uh, uh, many come, but few are chosen. And, uh, and so I know that few are chosen, but I, I can't, you can't judge literally uh, a book by its cover. I have no idea looking at uh, someone in my seminar, <clears throat> look, just looking at her face and, and their age or whatever, and say that person can write or that person will never write. How would I know? And so um, I welcome them all. And by the way, you know, a book-like character um, would be uh, uh, illuminating for somebody who has never intended to write, but they love to read. They love to go to the theater and films, and they are fascinated by the art form. And so um, uh, reading uh, good, you know, good work, insightful work on the nature of an art form is edifying. It's like, you know, people who want to enjoy music take music appreciation classes. So, but I know you're absolutely right. I'm not selling a dream. In fact, I go out of my way in my book to discourage people. It's the opposite. I tell them it's harder than you think. It's going to take more time than you think. And you may or may not be talented. The world will tell you in time. Why, though, do so many people think they have a book or a movie or a television series in them? Why do we dream of, of being successful sculptors, builders of character? You know, when you go through an experience, something intense of one kind or another, uh, don't you often rewrite that experience afterwards where you're sitting there thinking, you know what I should have said 
And if I had said that, then she wouldn't have done that. And and you and you rewrite life. This ability to rewrite life after the fact often leads people to think, I'm good at this. I can rewrite life. I do it every day. And um, uh, it and why shouldn't they? If they if they if they want to follow that instinct that they have a ta a talent for um, for taking chaos of every day and turning it into something beautifully shaped and expressed, why shouldn't they? They give it a try, um, and uh, 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 but as I say, I'm quite frank in my writing. I I do not pretend that this is easy or for everybody. I know the odds, but if you don't, if if we don't try to educate uh, people, that's why we have creative writing classes in universities, uh, teaching literature and whatnot. Uh, if we don't try to educate people about the art form, the art forms will wither. <clears throat> and so um, the craft has to be taught. You, teach, you have music schools and art schools and we have architecture schools. We have schools that teach the fundamentals of an art form in order to establish foundation for the talented, knowing that the odds are a thousand to one that they are talented. But there's still that one. Well, there you have it. There is still that one. Robert McKee is that one. He's the author of Character, The Art of Role and Cast Design for Page stage and screen. It's a must read if you fancy yourself as a writer for screen, um, particularly. Uh, he's taught many, many successful um, screenwriters. Um, Robert, you're in your home in Connecticut in these yeah. strange post-COVID times. We're all weary, but all kind of still stuck at home. In addition to character and your first two books story and dialogue what else should people be reading in these strange times well i've been um i've been uh, catching up on all the the authors like john updike that i didn't read when i should have um i've been reading a lot of patricia highsmith ah uh, yeah she's the most visual of writers isn't she and talk about <laughs> someone who who combined both good and evil in her work brilliantly um I've been uh, catching up on Ian Pears. Uh, the Immaculate Deception is a mm. delightful piece. Uh, but I read this uh, just um, uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, it's by an Australian author, The Narrow Road to the Deep North, Richard Flanagan, uh, won the Booker Prize and deservedly. It is talk about vivid images. There's a it's a story about the World War II, and there's a prisoner of war camp in the in the Southeast Asia that is in my memory forever. I mean, he just made that place so powerful, and so it's a terrific book. But I, you know, I think when you're when you're trapped like this, and it's a good I do what you know what I what I did. There's all those writers you never actually read. And they're all they're all there, you know. You just get them in the mail, and um, and you can just catch up on on all those people. Well, Robert, I can get congratulations on on, on character, your new book. Uh, 
It's 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 the third in the trilogy. I hope there's more from you. Real honor to talk, and uh, I'm going to be reading the book. I fancy myself as a screenwriter. I'm sure I will fail, but hopefully I will fail nobly. Thank you again. Keep well, and we'll have you back on the show again in the not-too-distant future to talk about how to create characters that beat human beings that can outlast them. Thank you so much. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. That was a terrific uh... Terrific accession. Appreciate it.